You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here with you, and we are joined in a, a stunning twist of fate by Stella Duffy, <laughs> author of Money in the Morgue, whose book uh, we covered as the second book this year. Fate, unfortunately, as the studio started to lock, for, lock down for us at the start of the year, kept us apart, but we finally managed to track Stella down, and it is so good to have you here with us today. Welcome to uh, the show. Good morning or good evening. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> a bit, bit of both for us with you Never over in the UK. Or Kiora, that's a better way to go. Mm-hmm. When it comes to money in the morgue, obviously this is a huge uh, task to undertake. And how daunting, I guess, was it for you being offered a decades-old manuscript from an author with as much cultural significance as a queen of crime like Nio Marsh? Very daunting, but also really exciting. So. Entirely out of the blue, I think towards the end of 2015 or beginning of 2016, I got an email from David Braun at HarperCollins, really lovely email, um, saying that they'd been, they'd found some notes. So Marsh didn't leave this one unfinished because she died. She left this one unfinished. She started it during the war and then didn't finish it. I suspect she didn't finish it because the way she'd set it up made it too bloody hard to finish. But anyway, um, she... Uh, had left it unfinished and they'd had Hub Collins had had this material for a very long time. So it's about four chapters, not full chapters and a few pages of notes. And then some more notes were found. So David had this for about 20 years and he had edited, he's edited the Sophie Hanna continuation, um, Agatha Christie novels. And that that's what he does at, um, at Hub Collins. Anyway, I got this email saying, uh, we found a bit more material. It's not a lot. Might you be interested? You're a member of the Detection Club. She was a queen of crime. She lived in England a lot, grew up in New Zealand. You grew up in New Zealand. You've lived in, in England for a very long time. She was a theatre director. You're a theatre person. We think this would work. Um, and I have to say, I don't know any other theatre writers and directors who have written some crime novels. I've only written some, more of my works, literary fiction, and also are New Zealand English people. Hmm. So I would have been annoyed if they'd asked anyone else. But <laughs> in asking me, it was a really agonising, because it's not my genre, it's not my field. I, I grew up in New Zealand, and when I was growing up in New Zealand, Naya Marsh was not a big deal. And, in fact, she's been sort of remembered a bit more but really in New Zealand she's much more successful for her um, theatre work and much better known for her theatre work and in fact her damehood I don't think it's for her writing I think it's for her theatre work she was hugely important for her theatre stuff in New Zealand um, and in fact New Zealand literary scene was ghastly to her in the you know even when she, even when Hapacons were publishing the Marsh Millions New Zealand literary scene were just appalling to her because they were so snobby about crime fiction um, and had no awareness of how amazing she was. So she was living in New Zealand doing amazing theatre work and, and her really close friends were really just like rude. It's, it's in, her in her autobiography, just rude about her writing. And then she would come to London where she was with the Detection Club members, where she was fated as a crime writer and she sort of lived across those two worlds. Anyway, long way of saying it was an absolutely terrifying offer, but a really juicy one. So I said yes. Yeah, I mean, that's one really exciting thing. I mean, we've spoken about the Detection Club several times on the show, and it's so great to see that it's still having an influence on some of the fantastic crime fiction that's coming out. 
And I guess the other question I had off the back of that is that, you know, obviously with this big daunting task, how much free reign were you able to take with the story? There's a lot of respect um, to be paid, but how does a beast like this take shape while maintaining Nyomarsh's voice? And was that a primary or secondary concern to weaving your own tale through it? Definitely a primary concern and, uh, not that I'm someone who goes to Goodreads that often, but if you do, um, the, the fans are totally divided. I actually think this is good. So there's no one going, oh, yeah, it's all right. There are people who go, oh, my goodness, she's totally captured the Omar's voice. It's amazing. <laughs> and people going, don't touch this book with a barge <laughs> She is evil and has killed Marsh again. Um, and I kind of think that's fine. If you're a huge Marsh fan, no one's going to do it for you. On the other hand, if you're a huge Marsh fan and you're reading Photo Finish, Marsh isn't going to do it for you either. So, you know, it's 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 it was important to me to get her voice, but it was also important to me to get her voice in the 21st century. I wasn't going to be writing uh, the homophobic things that she writes. I wasn't going to be writing stuff that was. Um, it's interesting. Some people think she's quite racist about Maori characters. I'm not sure. I think for somebody writing in the 30s and 40s in Aotearoa, New Zealand, the fact that she wrote Māori characters at all and in colour scheme, the fact that she acknowledged the, the problems of colonisation, the problems of what Pākehā white people brought to Aotearoa, New Zealand, I actually think is quite a, a strong awareness. Um, it's not great, but it's a strong awareness, certainly. And, I, and I, so I wanted to pay attention to that. But beyond that, I sort of tried to the thing that I went for was was doing a, a theatre piece, which is what you know is her big big skill um, and something that I know about. So I, I framed it around a theatre piece in a as a three act play and very classic Marsh form, and then tried to tell a story that I thought would more or less work with an absolutely absurd ending, not dissimilar to the Lapre's absolutely absurd ending. Yeah, well, one of the things that I really loved about the book was how that there was this constant framing of scenes as though it was a, a theatrical play, right? Um, a lot of the atmosphere and the way that the characters are kind of directed around the the moments and the scenes. Um, is, is this something that you normally employ when in, in your own, you know, creative works, or is this something that you kind of grappled with to to fit Marsh's voice? I guess. Um, I. I think I before I wrote this, I would have said, oh, no, no, I don't do this in my ordinary work. But of course I do. Yeah. I, I see things in scenes. Um, I, I'm not an old school actor and I didn't train old school. I know I work a lot in devising and improvising. So I'm not interested in three-act plays. I, I actually find the form so clunky. Um, however, it really suits, you know, a golden age mystery. It's, it's appropriate and it's right. So that's what you get. Um, although there is a prologue and an epilogue, so it could be considered a five-act piece. You know, and her prologue, I, I was looking at this again last night before talking to you, pretty much the entirety of the first, I think, three pages, I, I changed a couple of names and a tiny one or two lines, but it's so much and it's so, you know, at about eight o'clock on a disarmingly still midsummer evening. How gorgeous is that? You know, that's so yes. her. And you guys like the the Glossop character, he featured in her own writing. Glossop and Matron were in the first few chapters. Um, Alan's not in the first few chapters of hers. And there are books where he barely appears or in colour scheme where he's presented as um, somebody in disguise. I don't think that's a spoiler for someone who hasn't read colour scheme. Maybe it is. 
Um, but if you haven't, then you ought to have, so suck it up. Um, and I think that the, the thing about playing, bring, working out where to bring him in, that was hard for me. But then it, once I'd realised it was Midsummer, then making it Midsummer Night's Dream and having two couples and having Glossop be bottom to matrons to Tania, you know, all of that stuff. Um, was really easy for me to play with. And I have no idea if she intended that or not. I, I put the word Miss Summer in, Midsummer in. She made it. She had it as summer. But, you know, it would be silly not to. And then, of course, if it's Midsummer Night's Dream and she's written a rickety bridge, then, then it has to become a locked room mystery by taking the bridge out. She put the rickety bridge in. I put the storm in. So then you get a locked room mystery in, and, and it's way out in the plains anyway. It's quite hard for the police from Christchurch to get there. Yeah, you, you mentioned there was a, you know, the Glossop and the Machen were already part of the, the manuscript, as it were, Nari Marsh's manuscript there. Obviously, Sister Comfort is a character who's revealed through the story to be the, the inside woman, you know, she's with the detective this entire time. And I love the way that she's portrayed as like, she's always kind of there in the background and we finally get the big reveal, you know. Um, was that always part of Nari Marsh's plan or is that something that you kind of inserted? She had a dramatic personality. So there yeah. was a list of potential characters. Um, Sister Comfort was in it and in it as somebody annoying Glossip. So okay. they're there in her first few chapters. Rosman Farson is there with her, you know, I mean, it's a classic bit of Marsh where she, where she describes her as, you know, she's basically saying the girl's a child um, and <laughs> that's how she's writing her. So that sets something up really nicely. And... There was Sarah Warren. A lot of the names were there, although she also had four or five other options for the names. These are all handwritten notes that um, HarperCollins have copies of. So, and I found it really hard to decipher. And David, David had done lots of work on it to decipher them. Um, so there was that. Uh, there was a priest. There was a bunch of these names. The three young soldiers, um, their names are there. And, and Sergeant Bix, who I think she called him Bix so he could be Fox. I mean, I think that's I think that's really obvious. All it was obvious to me. I figured, mm-hmm. look, he's called Bix. It's practically Fox. Let's make him Fox. Well, he turns into a pretty you know charming character by the end, doesn't he? He's basically the Watson, the, the Fox by the end of it. Well, he, he is um, the Fox. He's not. Yeah. See, see Fox isn't as quite as smart as Watson. Watson often knows some things sure. that Holmes, Holmes doesn't. And Bix doesn't either, but he has that lovely adulation of Alan that, that works so well as a sidekick character. Now, I have to ask, Ms. Stella Duffy, I have to ask, you've listened to the episode, you know, I had a theory back when we read this book that you had constructed this story based on love, that all of the innocent characters were in love or were, you know, acting in love and all of the evil characters were committing crimes against love. Is is that something that's intentional? Is that something that you did deliberately? Have I cracked the code? Um, no, I, I wish I was that, that, that thoughtful of things. Um, no, I didn't do that. It, it is Midsummer Night's Dream. And in Midsummer Night's Dream, what you have is a not dissimilar concept. So so the three soldiers are the mechanicals. Um, you know, they, they all fit their roles. Gossip is bottom. They, 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 fit, they fit as best as I could. Midsummer Night's Dream, which is a five-act play, not a three-act play, within some of the stuff. So this whole middle chunk where there's all of those interviews, which I, you know, they're set pieces in her work. You know, there's a phenomenal interview in Died in the Wall, which I honestly think is one of her best books. 
by far, with Alan and can't remember her name at the moment. But anyway, it's still a phenomenal interview in a physical setting that cannot be anywhere but Aotearoa, New Zealand. And it's so clear. And so with those interviews, I wanted to give that a go. So that goes well away from Midsummer Night's Room, but it absolutely does what you're saying about the couples. And it shows who's the good people and who's the the baddies. And there was a whole other strand in there, uh, which would be far too much of a spoiler to give away because it would say who isn't a baddie for anybody who ends up reading this. But... um, Luke wasn't always going to be the person that he ends up being. And I wrote all of that and then ended up taking it out because it was too complicated even for Marsh. Yeah, I mean, one of the things is in this book is that you had the opportunity to change things around. And I know that this is like a weird position for us because this is the first time in the entire history of the show that we've had an author listen to our comments before asking questions. (laughs) But when we were speaking with uh, Jamie Bernthal Hooker about Roderick Allen and how you kind of changed him away from being... uh, hated Alan. I do, I do not oh. recall ever saying I hated Alan. I don't know where we might have been together or what event. I certainly have commented on how weird it is that Marsh clearly is in love with a character who's such a snob um, and, and such an arrogant snob at that. But um, I don't ever recall saying I hated him. But anyway, you keep. No, I, I didn't. I didn't get that impression. But what I was going to ask off the back of that was, you know, uh, you mentioned earlier that he was quite a homophobic character, and some people have said he's racist. I don't, I don't think he's necessarily homophobic. Mm. I think Marsh is homophobic. Sorry, Marsh writes gay men characters as extremely, often extremely effeminate, almost always wicked. And, and generally behaving badly, which is odd because in her real life, she had a lot of gay men friends and and lived very much in a world that, that accepted them within the confines of it being 40s, 50s, 60s mm. New Zealand. So then when it came to changing Alan and kind of tweaking him a mm. bit away from this uh, bravado that he has in some of Marsha's other works towards yeah. kind of the more how we described as a therapist role, you know, how how is it taking a character with as much significance to the the temple of Nio Marsh and tweaking it to fit the style of your narrative? Is that why the Goodreads audience is so divided? Um, might be. I think I think they I tell you what, it's mostly people complaining about my overuse of commas. What? <laughs> Genuinely. Go have a look. Um, and, and since then, I thought, oh, I must pay more attention to my commas. Seriously, people complaining about the overuse of commas appears to be Ludicrous. quite a problem. Now no one's going to be able to read this book ever without looking at <laughs> commas. Um, what I did, so I read, looked at them all, but then I only reread twice each the books going up to Died in the Wall because I, fi- I think this comes just before or just after Died in the Wall. And so that means that you can only have the Alan for the first sort of 10 books. And actually, Alan in the first, I think I would say 15 books, I find him a more bearable character. He's more of his time. He's he's when he's in New Zealand, he's so in love with New Zealand. I mean, and that's very nice. And I think that's partly because she was writing those books from England. So she's writing from an expat perspective because she was going by ship. So it took, you know, she was away for six months or a year at a time. Um, And also when she was off in in America. So what he has is an outsider's view on a people and a country. And I think I just softened the places where he's a little more arrogant with that. And I also think that, as I said, in in colour scheme, his attitude to what 
Pākehā white people have done to New Zealand at that time is pretty aware, really, for somebody who, you know, was in the First World War and is absolutely, you know, of, of the colonising classes. Would you recommend the experience of writing from from somebody else's brief uh, to other authors? Like, would you do it again if another Marsh or a Christie manuscript appeared from an ancient Macedonian tomb? Um, I I was asked if I wanted to do another one without any mm. other starters, which which I think would be easier. So Sophie Hannah and I have talked about this, and she said that she thinks it would be easier to do it without someone else's beginning. Um, I don't have time, and that's why I said no at the moment. Um, I I would. I've got a lot on. I, you know, I, I do a lot. I write a lot. I run a small charity. I'm doing a doctorate in existential psychotherapy. I've got quite a lot of other things I want to do. So doing someone else's voice would need to be an amazing offer. Um, and I don't mean financially because mostly I'm a literary novelist, so I'm used to it not being a financial amazing offer. Um, I have to just be desperate to do it. And this, I mean, for, that's why I said yes to this. It was a, just such a juicy offer. And actually, I probably wouldn't have said yes if it hadn't been set in New Zealand. Um, my dad, uh, both my parents would have been 99 this year. They've been dead a long time. My dad joined up. He was in the New Zealand Air Force in 1939. And from then on, he was a prisoner of war for four and a half years. My mum was in the army in England. And they were exactly, my dad and my uncles were exactly the age of these soldiers. And I had a, I felt a real affinity to not just the characters, but to their language. I mean, it was so cool to write the language of my dad and my uncles and remember that, that you know, just that old, those old Kiwi blokes, their voices and how they might have sounded as young men. Yeah. And I guess, you know, coming from uh, those Kiwi blokes and the New Zealand culture that this is birthed from, as you mentioned earlier, Naya Marsh was kind of ridiculed a bit in her home turf until she sailed off overseas. One of the other interesting things that we've spoken about recently on the show is how for authors, the world has kind of opened up recently because doing anything outside of the US and the UK was frowned upon by a lot of publishers, which, you know, maybe was one of the reasons this manuscript got dropped. So, you know, how is it how is it you can get away in the modern day? What do you think has changed for authors to allow them to write these broader stories in different parts of the world with this extra cultural interaction? And what does that lend to you as a creator, as a storyteller? That's a great question. I, I've written lots of novels that are set in two places and quite a few that are set in two times. My new one that comes out in February is set in three time periods. I don't recommend that. Oh dear God, <laughs> the editing was agony. Um I think it. I think we do. I mean, you know, globalization has a great deal that we can blame it for, and it's not by any means an unmitigated good. And it's primarily only a good for those of us in the privileged West. On the other hand, for those of us in the privileged West, it has given us access to to thinking, to cultures, and hopefully, somebody who grew up in New Zealand. You guys are in, in Australia. Hopefully an understanding of the indigenous cultures of our lands, possibly seen more cleanly without those generations of colonisation thrown on top of us where we might go, oh, I see, I've, I've, I've been to, to, I don't know, Greenland, I've been to Iceland, I've seen, I've seen the First Nations people in Canada, I've seen their lives, I have a better understanding of the First Nations people of my own land. 
potentially because we're just a bit rubbish at looking at home. And so for all of us, when we can look somewhere else beyond home, it gives us a really different view of what home is. And I think, I actually think that's one of the most amazing things that Marsh brings to her writing. And that's why for my money, she's a better writer than Christy because her characters, I know, I know that's shocking. <laughs> her, her plotting's not as good. So, hey, lucky me, right? But her characters are infinitely better across the board than Christy. Christy will give you three or four brilliantly drawn characters, but her ensemble are pretty dire. Marsh, and I do think this is because she lived in New Zealand and lived in England, because she travelled to the States a lot. Because she she knew what it was like to be from two worlds. And, and I think that gave her a different perspective. And also her theatre work. She just writes ensembles much better than Christy does. Mm. And even though she's still really classist, she writes working class people a damn sight better than Christy. Yeah, I mean, for me, when I read really well, murder mysteries, really any novel, I'm always looking at the characters. I'm a very character-focused reader i guess because is, i'm always looking for you know not not just to empathize with the detective or the antagonist in a twist but like if every character on the page and i think that is something that you've really achieved with this book you've written almost every character to be sympathetic in some way um although i do i do want to say i have a score to say with flex here because he actually <laughs> solved the mystery for this which i'm very annoyed at you know i thought i'd catch you with all his love stuff but one of the keys for Flex actually solving this mystery uh, was the inclusion of the character list. He picked out the significance of Duncan Blakey because he was in the list. So I have to ask Stella, when you included this list, did you think it would be used to solve the mystery? Not to use it. I knew it was going uh-huh. to be useful to people like you guys who think of these things. Uh-huh. I put it in because she had it in her notes and because I thought it was appropriate and because I thought it was, it was, it was we didn't cut any of her stuff. Some of her stuff has changed a bit to make it, hey, this is weird. I'm actually feeling quite emotional about this because I really wanted to do justice to what she had left. Okay, I'm surprised to be feeling emotional, but I honestly, and it felt wrong to cut that, right? And not all of the names and some some extra names because like she had different names for Sarah and she had different names for Luke. So the, the dramatic person I isn't as she wrote it, but it was in her notes. And I did know that, but also if I'd left him out of it, that would have been a clue as well. So I had to leave it. I had to hope that most people don't look at it. And and so I put that in. I mean, I thought it would have been wrong to not use what she had done. So, like, and there's also people who think that, so good, good reads. There's also people who think the title is terrible. Why isn't it Money in the Morgue? A murder in the Morgue? Why would you call it Money in the Morgue? Because she did. Because she did. That was her title. I'm not going to change her title. I mean, come on. You know, and, and, it, and people go, well, it's not even a proper pun. She always does really good puns. Yeah, she does. But, well, I mean, not always, but quite often. Um, Died in the Wool and Colour Scheme, for example. They're great. They're lovely. But there was nothing I could do about it. It was her title. I went with it. And I think I think that is a great yeah. point about this book is that for all that it does, for all that it changes, for all of the things where I, I where Goodreads comes in and says you've ruined Marsh, I think you've done an excellent job being Not all of them though. I have to add, <laughs> some people do think I'm amazing. I find it really weird. Well, where in that camp? Really- <laughs> <laughs> there you're very kind. Um I I genuinely for me, I would rather it was divided 
then they didn't care. But the best, the best bit, right, is that it, it, some people said it sent them back to read her. And that was why HarperCollins wanted to do it. And that was why I wanted to do it. It is, it is really unfortunate that unlike Christie, she didn't have kids. The Christie estate, I mean, Christie's grandson, Matthew, has done an amazing job with her estate. He has been able to keep it going, to keep the story going. Du Maurier's family did the same. She didn't have people to do this for her. And a lot of her friends and colleagues in New Zealand in Christchurch, the people who look after the Naomi Marsh House Trust, who were very helpful to me, they have done as much as they could, but it's not the same. And they've never been given the kind of support I mean, it's kind of weird in New Zealand. I think they're getting a bit better. But, you know, everyone's all over Catherine Mansfield, who is an amazing writer. But there's this really phenomenally successful person who was internationally successful and one of the first women ever to sell a million and created New Zealand and the New Zealand versions of Arts Council and government haven't supported her legacy in the same way. I think that's a real shame. And so... But because she didn't have kids, because she didn't have grandkids to push this, her, her voice and her name has been much less pushed aside than Christie's. And, and people don't know about the four queens of crime. You know, they know about Christie. And that's a real pity. Yeah. And I mean, it's there's so much to say for how authors are treated past their lifetime. Oh, yeah. And when oh, we yeah. look at so many other great artists, but it's for me as a reader, it's really inspiring having people like yourself and the team at HarperCollins come along to put these things together in a way that doesn't feel like the kind of trashy reboots you'd get in something like cinema. This feels like a really legit story. And that's something, that's something to treasure whether or not you're part of the other half of Goodreads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, worse half. Let's be clear. Yeah. Well, no, no, but I mean, people people can have their opinion, and they should, right? They really 100%. should. And and as somebody yeah. who likes it, when I get good reviews, I can't then say I don't. You know, I shouldn't get bad ones. <laughs> either you go, either you don't pay attention to any reviews, or you pay attention to all of them, and that's totally fair enough. What I, I mean, I'm really glad you mentioned the team at HarperCollins because. I think that what they're doing with their continuation novels, and it does annoy some people. There are some people who think it should never happen. One of the, the things that made me very happy about when this book came out was that somebody who has um, been very rude about some of the continuation novels, let's just leave it like that, actually said that this changed his mind about what they were doing at HarperCollins and thought that it was worthwhile after all. So that was nice for me. But I, I think that... that we just live in a culture where people want you. And it doesn't matter if you say you haven't read this novel, it's from 1932. People are going to go, well, I still want one from 2021. So if somebody reapproaches a writer and fashions their work in a way that is still accessible to someone now, but with the tone of what they were doing, and if that then leads them back, I think that's so valuable. Definitely. And I think it's so useful because... You know, there are so many writers and so many of us making new work. And we live in a culture that wants the new all the time. There's all this previous work. We could stop writing now, all of us. We could never write again and there'd still be more novels than any one of us could ever read in a dozen lifetimes. If, if these works, these continuation works and, and these, these new works by old authors take people back, I think that's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, funnily enough, that's the concept that the show is named after that, you know, if you can't read anything, why read it all? Which we thought was so ridiculous that we named the show after it. 
<laughs> but Stella, it has been such a pleasure speaking to you after so many months and also uh, giving us an excuse to guys. reread this book. Like, I w- oh, well looking done. for one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. And, um, yeah, no, I, I'm totally with you on the um, the plotting. God, mm-hmm. I, I struggled. It's really hard. Um, and, and it was so funny hearing you talk about people. I've got no idea who they are with their rules about what to do. Um, <laughs> And I just know that you're not supposed to have the the um, it, it be solved by it being a dream at the end. Mm-hmm. And at least I achieved that, although it is Midsummer Night's Dream. So there you go. It's true. That's true. And, of course, if you're interested in finding out about those rules, you can always check out our breakdowns of Nox and Van Dyne on the podcast. Stella Duffy, thank you one last time for joining us here on Death of the Reader. It's been so good speaking with you. Very welcome. You are listening to Death of the Reader. This is Flex and Herds talking money in the morgue. And we'll be back next time with more on Death of the Reader.